This episode of Bring Back V10s is brought to you by F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences offers exclusive access to the world of F1, including pit walks, paddock access, rare photo opportunities and guided circuit tours to name just a few of the things you can do. And who better to ask for advice on how to get the most out of attending an F1 weekend than a man who's been to hundreds of Grand Prix, our very own Ed Straw. So Ed, in the unlikely event of us giving you the weekend off and you being free to go to the event with F1 experiences, what would be at the top of your to-do list? The glamour is part of Formula One and everyone should at least once in their lives enjoy a day in Formula One's paddock club, soaking up the atmosphere with fine food and their beverage of choice. It will also offer a great view of the track, the paddock and the pits so you can get close to the heart of F1. Just make sure that once you've done that, you head out trackside to get up close and personal with the cars, which after all, is what it's all about. For me, it's got to be the photo opportunity with the World Championship trophies. They're iconic, not seen in public that often, and of course, I'd be straight in there looking for the commemoration of Jacques Villeneuve's 1997 season. Those are our tips here at Bring Back V10s. To find out more and to book your own F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com. One of the most famous races of our beloved V10 era happened right towards the end of the final season in 2005, when a mixed up grid set up an incredible afternoon of racing that was settled with a pass for the win on the final lap. We are of course talking about the 2005 Japanese Grand Prix today on Bring Back V10s and how Kimi Raikkonen pulled off one of his most sensational victories with McLaren. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back on that weekend, the two men who were there at Suzuka, Mark Hughes, who was reporting on that weekend, and former McLaren mechanic Mark Priestley, who was working on Raikkonen's car. So two Marks on the show, which won't at all get confusing. Now, Mark Hughes, I'll come to you first. When you think back to Suzuka 2005, what's the first thing that comes to mind? <laughs> the um, After the race, I was, you know, standard thing you're going to find as many people as you can as many drivers and team people and i was trying to find pat simmons and of course he was gutted because they just lost the race on the last lap and um, they'd lost the race twice in fact because they felt they'd lost it with alonso but the, what happened in race control which we'll talk about later but they'd also lost it with fissy with that pass on the last lap by kimmy and so he was very reluctant to to talk and I was sort of following him around and he was just trying to avoid me. But eventually I hung around long enough. He, he came over and he, he opened up and he, he was completely gutted. But he um he gave me a couple of details from the telemetry, um, which uh, were just yeah, mind-blowing. And um, we'll talk in more detail about it later. But the, the most impressive thing was he, he read out the... Um, the speed that Alonso was doing when he passed Schumacher around the outside of 130R said he was doing an apex speed of 208 miles an hour. <laughs> with his with his wheels about half an inch away from Michael's, you know, and in but in those days, one thirty R wasn't easy for flat, flat. It was much more marginal flat than now, and it wasn't, you know, you 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 do see it's 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 still an unusual move to try and go around the outside there, but it, you you do see it. It happens particularly on the first first second laps there, but back then it was just almost unthinkable, and he just did it, and he didn't need to do it. He he was already the world champion. He clinched out of the previous race. He just did it because you know. Michael was there, and he, he needed to pass him, and he did it. He did it in that most spectacular way. So, yeah, that's um, that's that's how I remember that race. 
And to do it to Michael Schumacher as well, uh, of all people. Now, Mark Priestley, welcome back to the show. Good to have you along again. For the rest of the episode, we'll refer to you as Elvis, which is a nickname you are pretty well known for already. And it avoids me having to use everybody's surname all the way through this episode. Now, as I mentioned, you were working on Raikkonen's car that weekend. So what's your overriding memory of Suzuka 05? Yeah, thank you. Good to be back. Um, my overriding memory of that weekend is, well, the memory that I think of that I remember best and worst is the celebration <laughs> because the celebration post-race was epic. It went on for, if I remember rightly, we started in Suzuka, it migrated to Tokyo and then continued over to Shanghai, which was the following race, went on for three days. It was unbelievable. But poor old Mark was writing his race report and there you guys were living it up <laughs> celebrating your victory. But before we go any further, we should also mention that you've launched a new podcast quite recently. So why don't you tell our listeners all about that and how they can check it out? Yeah, thanks very much. So this is a brand new thing for me. It's called Pit Lane Life Lessons, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts from or on my YouTube channel. It's basically, since I left the team, what I've started doing is consulting for a lot of business organizations about how what lessons we can learn from, from Formula One. And I've learned so much. I only realized really recently that a lot of the lessons I learned from my time in Formula One, I'm still using every day. So this podcast is essentially a way to pass on some of those lessons to people. Maybe they can take some things that might help them succeed in their everyday lives. That's the idea. So it's pit lane life lessons. Definitely one to check out. I've already had a listen. I think I found it through Spotify. But as Mark says, you can, it's cropping up everywhere now. As, uh, as We all know what the approval process is like for launching a new podcast, but it's gradually turning up <laughs> everywhere. This is our final regular episode of our third series of Bring Back V10s. I do have a little news update for you quickly. We'll be taking uh, a week or two off after this before we return with our double header finale where we'll be answering your questions on F1's V10 era. There's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, it prevents our recording schedule from clashing with the busy F1 testing period, but it also gives me time to move house, which has come up at quite short notice. Once those things are out of the way, we'll be back to see out the series answering your questions. So make sure you follow at We Are The Race on social media and at Glenn Freeman 39 on Twitter for updates on exactly when we'll be back, but hopefully it won't be too long. That does at least give you a little longer to get your questions in on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005, and you can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by including a question in a five-star podcast review. That also means it's time for the latest round of shout-outs to our reviewers in what is quickly turning into a game of me failing to keep up with how many of you are leaving us reviews at the moment. So thank you so much to everyone who's getting in touch about the show, including this week, Ashwoody90, Marzal1974, Weber46, Rich1701A, Calibra Turbo Man, Formula Phil, Spennyboy5, Paul Glover7 and Keir Lumsden. There's many more to come, and uh, to be honest, you guys are making it quite difficult to keep up. But let's get on with Suzuka 2005, and it should come as no surprise that Honda was all over the news heading into its home race. Firstly, the Japanese manufacturer upped its 45% stake in BAR to 100%, and that immediately prompted talk of challenging for the World Championship in 2006. But it was at the other end of the grid that a more interesting Honda-related story broke, as Takuma Sato revealed that after being dropped for 2006, he'd been offered a drive with a new unknown team that was trying to get onto the grid. Sato said ahead of his home race, 
It's not confirmed that this new team will race, but I have received an offer. A lot of things have happened so quickly and I'm obviously very excited about this offer. I'm expecting to race in 2006, whether with a new team or an existing team. Honda was initially very coy on what was going on. Uh, Honda's operating officer Hiroshi Oshima said, Bernie Eccleston has given the team his blessing and we are looking into the possibility of supplying their engines. Honda Racing President uh, Yasuhiro Wada went further, saying it's an independent team already involved in racing and hoping to enter Formula One. They are finalising details and I don't expect an announcement is too far away. We will have a contract to supply engines and also technical assistance. So who was this mystery team Honda was suddenly linking up with? It was indeed an independent project that had been in the works for around a year by this point. So let's hear from Mark Preston, who was central to those plans and the man who would be technical director at what was to become Super Aguri when XF1 driver Aguri Suzuki came calling on behalf of Honda. I suppose in order to maybe give a little bit of backstory on this, if you remember, Paul Stoddart bought all of the assets of Arrows um, and he'd had a, uh, a sale, an auction down at Ledbury the previous year, I think it was, and I'd gone down there and asked how much could it, would it cost to buy the entire assets of, of Arrows in order to have the basis of an F1 team. And um, I think at the time he said a million dollars. And then sort of uh, in, in 2005, the, obviously the rules had been coming up that there was going to be potential B teams. So if you remember, I think Dave Richards was looking at it as well, I think, to do something with McLaren. And of course, as we learned um, in that same time period, Red Bull was looking at it with, with what would become Toro Rosso when um, they bought Minardi. Uh, um, so the, um, the, the whole thing there was that because of the rule change, everyone was looking at it. And so I think Honda was as well, looking at what, what they should do. Um, and at the same time, obviously, Takuma um, was uh, dropped by HRF1 at the time. And so then I think Uguri was asked to look at the whole, the whole process of having a, a B team. So... I don't know quite all the details of what discussions had been going on in, in Japan, but because of all of the other rules, um, Honda had definitely been looking at um, the whole B-team scenario anyway and had been getting Aguri to have a look at that as well. So uh, basically, I think Aguri talked to Daniel Odetto because Aguri knew Daniel from the days of um, the Nissan program in Le Mans, uh, which TWR had done. Uh, so Tom Walker and Sharon had done. So I think that's where the loop came with with Daniel. And then Daniel called um, Kevin Lee, who'd been working with me on how to do a plan. And then we all got together to um, figure out what, you know, what could be done. And because we'd been working out all the people we would hire and where we'd go to Leafield and, you know, we'd been sort of figuring out all of the, the basics of how we'd start really quickly then um, that's why uh, it sort of all came together quite quickly. So Aguri came and came over to see us and, you know, we, we said, look, this is the plan. This is what we would do if we had all of the pieces of the puzzle. And, of course, Aguri had Honda, so he had the powertrain, had Bridgestone, had Takuma um, and the backing of, of Honda. So uh, that that's, was quite a, quite a surprise that, you know, we'd been looking at how you do it for uh, the last y previous year 
and um, along came someone with all of the pieces of the puzzle that we needed to to put something together. So Mark, really interesting stuff there from Mark Preston about how this all came together. But was this sudden need for Honda to have a second team on the grid just a reaction perhaps to how badly received BAR's dropping of Sato was taken in Japan? I don't think it would have happened had it not been for Sato. Um, he was a, a really big deal uh, for Honda and its marketing in Japan. But he'd done two years alongside Jensen Button and he just, you know, he'd had a bit of a rough time. He'd, he'd come in well, he'd made quite a, a good impression in 04, but he just really, he, he was, give the impression he'd been sort of psyched out. He, 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 was, he wasn't driving with his usual flair throughout most of 2005 and they just felt they needed a more consistent performer. They sort of the, the British base part of Honda that was you know BAR um, they felt that um, they needed a you know a, a tougher professional more experienced driver and so yes uh, um, Honda still very much wanted Sato in Formula One and I, I, you know, I'm sure that was a lot of the impetus behind the creation of Super Aguri yes. And Elvis when you're in a team like McLaren you're working inside it that's your whole focus all the time does a story like that even register to you guys uh, or do you hear about it eventually and just think, okay, that's two more cars we're going to have to lap next year? <laughs> uh, I don't think we were ever that arrogant about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it doesn't really register in a competitive sense because, I mean, let's make no bones about it, for most of the time they were at the opposite end of the grid. But I definitely remember noticing it on a, on a more personal level because we got to know everybody. You know, the mechanics all talked to each other up and down the grid and you know, there was going to be opportunity for, for, for more jobs. You know, there was, there was not, we weren't going to lose a team. And knowing what that must, or appreciating what that must feel like to know that, you know, I dreamt of working in Formula One all my life. If that dream was taken away because my team disappeared, you know, I'd have been heartbroken. So the fact that there looked to be at least a secure spot on the grid for, for those people was, I guess, some comfort for everybody. Yeah, and as Mark Preston actually explained to us, uh, it brought some people from Arrows back as well who'd lost their jobs mid-season a few years earlier. So good news all round, really. Now, at the other end of the grid, a much bigger driver market story was brewing, and this one was for 2007 rather than 2006, and that was talk that Kimi Raikkonen had signed for Ferrari. Ferrari called it speculation and refused to comment, with Jean Tot adding, nobody will push us to say something before we want to say something. Raikkonen didn't exactly pour cold water on the flames, saying they are not new rumours, but now everyone knows that my contract is only to next year with McLaren, so maybe it becomes more exciting to write those rumours. Ron Dennis didn't take particularly well to the repeated speculation that was growing by this point. He told the media, why don't you believe Kimi? He has told me, his management have told me, and Kimi told a press conference that he hasn't signed a contract with Ferrari. But the only person that can tell you he has not signed a document with Ferrari is Kimi. I can't. I haven't a clue what he has signed. So, Mark, do you think there's actually a hint there from Ron about what perhaps had happened by this stage in 2005, that Raikkonen had signed something with Ferrari, even if it wasn't a contract? Yeah, I think Ron was pretty much um, up to date with what was happening. He just couldn't get it confirmed by either Kimi or his management. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty much um, common knowledge by that time that uh, they were in deep discussion. Kimi and Ferrari were in deep discussion for 2007. And I remember quite late in 2006, it still hadn't been announced, but it was the worst kept secret in the world. And I was sitting in the McLaren motorhome with um, Kimi's manager, um, Steve Robertson. 
And it was known by this time that Alonso was joining the following year. And Steve said, um, what do you think they'll do here then from alongside Fernando? And uh, I couldn't believe he just said that. Because <laughs> I said, well, it'll be, Ki- it'll be Kimmy, won't it, Steve? He said, I, I mean, if it's not Kimmy. <laughs> 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 yes, yeah, so it, it was quite a, a badly kept secret. How badly kept was the secret inside McLaren, Elvis? Did you guys already know that Kimmy was probably going to be off at the end of 2006? I don't think we knew for sure, certainly by the time we got to Suzuka 05. I know the rumours were starting to swirl and, you know, we were raising eyebrows, but uh, we certainly hadn't heard anything official. And Kimmy, you know, we had a great relationship around our car crew, the, the mechanics and the engineers and Kimmy. We were really close. And it was pretty early in 2006 that he did tell me that it was all very much in confidence at that point. It hadn't been announced, as as Mark said, but we knew quite early on within our group we had to keep it secret, even from our wider team at that point, because that was a, a, a some information that had been given to us, you know, on trust that we were this tight group of, of mates by that point. So it was devastating, if I'm honest, when we found that out, because although it wasn't surprising because the rumours had been going around for a while, we had this amazing bond, you know, probably the best little team within a team that I've ever been part of. And Kimmy was a central part of that. Our mechanics, our engineers, Mark Arnold, Kimmy's uh, trainer as well. We had an amazing bond and, um, you know, we were so close to achieving something incredible and 2005 was perhaps our best year. So going through 2006, knowing that, you know, that was coming to an end was, yeah, it was pretty devastating, to be honest. Now, by the time we get to Suzuka, the Drivers' Championship's already been decided, as Mark mentioned earlier, in favour of Fernando Alonso, with Raikkonen missing out after coming close for the second time in three years. But Kimi said... Missing out at the final race in 2003 to Michael Schumacher was much more painful because in 2005, McLaren saw quite a long time ago it'd be very difficult to catch Alonso and Renault. Now, Elvis, you were there for both title defeats. Was it the same for you? Did 2003 hurt more? Yeah, it did because, I mean, certainly on a personal level, that was the first time that I'd got into the final day of a season with a chance that we might win it. And I appreciate in 2003, it was still a long shot, but, you know, we came close. And I think what was special about 03 was that we exceeded most people's expectations. Kimmy was quite early in his, uh, his in his McLaren career as a group of people, as this little team. We were all very new. That was our first year together as a group. So we, we felt like we'd exceeded our expectations. And to get to the final day, although I think we probably knew it was a bit of a long shot, we went into that day with a glimmer of hope. And you know, you've got to remember that when you're part of a Formula One team, just like the way a driver grows up dreaming of becoming world champion, we do the same. And, you know, that's the holy grail for us. And we came within touching distance of it. And so, yes, 2003, although, you know, like I say, it was a long shot, it was heartbreaking to to have it disappear in that moment. 2005, I felt was a better year, stronger year for us on many levels. We let ourselves down with reliability issues all over the place. But like you say, we could we could see that picture forming a lot earlier in the season as opposed to 03 when there was a chance we could do it on the last day. And Mark, we talked there a little bit about how great 2005 was for McLaren and Kimi. How good was Kimi himself in 2005? Was it his best F1 season? He had somebody to choose from. He was fantastic throughout his McLaren um, um, career. Uh, it... Yeah, it was his most competitive season because the the car was that was the most competitive car he had during his time at McLaren. Um, but he was fantastic in two thousand and three. 
you might you might even say 2006 when the car was not particularly good he was sensationally good at times that year as well um and the he completely um blew montoya away and triggered montoya's you know withdrawal from the the season halfway through so yeah a lot to choose from but he was he was pretty magnificent he's on magnificent form in 2005 yeah Elvis, you were nodding along there. I should ask you the same question, really. You worked with him for all of those seasons. Uh, what, do you have a favourite or do you have one that you think was his best? I, I think 2005 is probably as strong as we've ever seen Kimmy. I mean, I agree with Mark. He's That was his prime, those were his prime years, uh, that entire period. Um, so it is quite difficult to, to pick one over the other. But the fact that we got so many victories in 2005, some of those victories, like the one we're talking about today, came against a backdrop of adversity for various reasons. You know, he was capable of pulling results out of the bag that perhaps the car or the circumstances didn't necessarily deserve on a particular day. And that was one of his strengths. He was no fuss. There was no ego. There was no fuss around anything that he did. We knew that if we gave him a car, he'd pretty much guaranteed to deliver with it. The Constructors' Championship was still up for grabs at this point. And McLaren, in fact went into Japan, uh, the penultimate race of the season, two points ahead of Renault. Uh, but Alonso had the championship he really wanted in his pocket already, and uh, he was surprisingly honest coming into this weekend because he said as much. Uh, Alonso said, For the drivers, the only important thing that motivates you is the drivers' championship. The constructors is good because you feel part of the team, but at the end of the day, it is not so important for you. It's true that there is not the same motivation for the last two races, but I will enjoy these two races because I have no pressure. I think someone might have had a word in Fernando's ear about those comments because when he got to Japan, he changed his <laughs> tune slightly, saying, we have another championship to win. I believe we have been the best in 2005 and I'll be working at full power to win the Constructors' title too. In fairness, Raikkonen said something similar at Suzuka. He said the driver's title was the only one that really mattered, but Kimi said what he called the Construction Championship was important for the team and engine supplier Mercedes as well. So Elvis, give us the team member perspective, because you were specifically working on Raikkonen's car, so you had that driver connection, but was one championship more important than the other to you and the guys in your crew? Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head there because, you know, it's easy to look at it and say, well, the team's championship or the constructors' championship must be the one that the teams really want to win. But it does depend where you're working in that team. Because when I was working specifically on Kimi's car, more than anything, I wanted to win the Drivers' Championship with Kimi because that's what I felt my sole focus was on. As a group of people, in all honesty, we didn't really care what happened over the other side of the garage. And that's just the truth. We were solely focused on getting Kimi to the chequered flag first. And, you know, there's always this secondary consideration. That obviously, we want the other car to come up just behind us, but we don't want him in front because he's the enemy at that moment. So in that sense, the, the people specifically associated to one car want that car to win the driver's championship. However, you know, a few years later, you roll the clocks on and I was now in a position where I wasn't associated to either car. I was in a more central role in the garage. And in that situation, then totally changed. I wanted the constructors championship and that then became my biggest focus. So it definitely depends where you sit in a team on any given moment, what your biggest focus or your biggest desire is in terms of championships. But what Kimi and Fernando said in those quotes about the driver only being interested in the driver's championship, 100% true. And anyone that tells you otherwise is lying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, not for the first time in 2005, tyres were in the news this weekend. Firstly, uh, Toyota confirmed its switch from Michelin to Bridgestone for 2006, with Williams also moving over to bolster Bridgestone's ranks after a difficult year where Ferrari was its only front-running team. Toyota said this was a good time to reconsider the contracts about who its tyre supplier was, while Frank Williams said we would rather be a serious party amongst a small crowd than one of seven teams running on Michelin's. Now, Mark, we won't go into this too much as it revisits a lot of ground we covered back in our Ferrari 2005 episode in Series 1. But specifically looking at Toyota, 2005 was their best season. They finished fourth in the championship. Was the switch from Michelin to Bridgestone for 2006 actually one of Toyota's many mistakes? In hindsight, yes, but not because the 2006 Bridgestone was a bad tyre. It was actually a really great tyre um, and uh, probably even better than the Mitchell in the second half of that year. But um, it, the, the car had been designed around Michelin's and it was at the time when zero keel and twin keels were how, how the suspension was mounted were very much the talk up and down the pit lane and that was to do with aerodynamics but also to do with the um, the range of camber each tyre type needed and the the Bridgestone needed a lot of camber and the Michelin didn't so that impacted on the design of the the car really and the Toyota had been conceived and developed as a Michelin car and all of a sudden it was switched to become a Bridgestone car so that meant quite a lot of re-engineering work and for a lot of 2006 it was just really regaining the ground that they'd lost with that switch so it wasn't that the tyre was a worse tyre and 06 was really good it was just the, the fact of the change and that the car hadn't been designed around it. It was around this weekend that we also got word that tyre changes, which were outlawed in races for 2005, could possibly come back for 2006. Funnily enough, this proposal was being put forward by Ferrari's Ross Braun and Williams's Patrick Head, whose teams would both be on Bridgestones the following year. Unsurprisingly, Pierre Dupassier of Michelin wasn't impressed to hear this, but perhaps his reasoning was a bit more surprising. Dupassier told Autosport, We talked to our friends from Bridgestone and they said they don't need this new rule, so I don't know why the FIA need to introduce tyre changes again. We had excellent racing this year, why ruin that? Now Mark, you've talked in the past about Bridgestone being confident it could design a tyre to suit the no-change rules if they'd stayed in place for 2006. So let's pick up on Depasquier's second point. Do you think that getting rid of tyre changes did make the racing better in 2005? I don't know, really. It, it, it was just different. I don't know whether it was better or not. Um, what was for certain was that Bridgestone in 2005 didn't have a an appropriate tyre for no, no tyre changes. They had a, a, a very different concept of tyre to Michelin and one that used to run hot and wear a lot more than the Michelin so the Michelin was by definition much better suited and and that no change rule came in very late in the day so Bridgestone didn't really have a, a suitable tire um but for 2006 they did because basically they, they, they copied the Michelin um and in different compounds but the, the construction was it was very much along the lines of the Michelin so it was perfectly suited to either type of racing um but I think we had good races in both years I don't think it was you know, you could say one was better than the other, really. And I guess anything after 2004, anything that involved Ferrari not winning every week probably seemed like an upgrade. But Elvis, let's look at the McLaren perspective, because 
Ron Dennis seemed to be leading the charge against this proposed change in terms of the team bosses. Was there a concern inside McLaren that this could undo some of the great work of 2005 if tyre changes came back? Well, I think that's exactly the point. We were on a roll uh, as, a, as a team. We were looking great. You know, things were going really well. The, in fact, one of the only things that was really letting us down in 05 were things like engine problems and, and car technical failures. When the car was running well, it ran really well. So, you know, you don't want to upset, upset that. You don't want to destabilise that uh, that trajectory that you're on. So that's why Ron was suggesting that. Michelin, as Mark said, Michelin had the better tyre at that point. So you don't want to change it. I have to say from a personal perspective, I missed the tyre changes in pit stops. You know, it was one of my favourite elements of the weekend, which was gone. And pit stops in 2005 were a really weird kind of scenario where we didn't really do anything. Um, you know, we were checking tyre pressures and things like that in the pit stop, which is a really strange phenomenon. So for me, I would have loved to see them come back, but that's just my own personal preference. Yeah, pit stops from 2005 are very strange to go back and watch. You sort of got three <laughs> mechanics or whatever it was per wheel all kind of looking at the tyre and just yeah. turning their heads to make it look like they're trying to do something <laughs> or contribute. So I do uh, I do sympathise. But you mentioned their engine and technical failures for McLaren and the real bad news of the weekend at Suzuka came in practice when Raikkonen suffered his fourth engine failure of the season, meaning he would pick up another 10-place grid penalty Uh which had really derailed his championship charge at various points. But Alonso had an interesting theory on this. He said, McLaren have been very lucky again. I have been saying this all year, but nobody believed me. The four engine problems Kimi has had, if they'd happened in the races, then he would have lost 30 or 40 points, and this would have been a big help for me and Renault. He can easily finish on the podium, and it will be difficult for us to beat him in the race, even if he starts 11th. Was it ever interpreted like that inside the team, Elvis? Did you ever think, oh, it's lucky that we get these engine failures, at least because they're in practice? Did Alonso have a point that at least the car didn't break down in the races? Well, he might have done, but I'd have felt a lot luckier if we didn't have any. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a good couple of hours work, apart from anything else. Um, Yeah, I mean, there is is an argument to that, isn't there, that, um, you know, any failure in the race costs you more dearly, but... That's kind of the point of practice. You know, that's where you push things to maybe further limits or you try things out because you don't mind to the same extent of failure at that early part of the weekend. So it was probably some of that that we were trialing things. Don't forget, of course, we were using different engines on a Friday back then. Um, So it's not quite as straightforward as just being about luck. Um, There is an element to it. But I mean, we were unlucky on so many occasions over the course of that 2005 season. And you know, I'm a firm believer that you sort of make your own luck. So I don't want to complain and moan that, you know, the world was against us. We could have done better. But, um, you know, the, the point was when things were running really well, we were so, so good. And I think from Fernando Alonso's perspective, he probably knew that. If we hadn't had any of those failures, we would have been, I think, really dominant that season. I think we would have really walked away with it to some extent. As he touched on in that quote you just said there, it couldn't really touch us on many occasions. And it was only the unreliability that probably gave him the shot at staying in that championship and ultimately winning it. Now, Mark, uh, Mercedes boss Norbert Howe did say this weekend, we have to apologise. And he said, we never speak about luck. We are just not good enough. Is it oversimplifying things to say that if Mercedes had got its act together during this era, Raikkonen would have won the, the 03 and 05 titles? A little bit, but I mean, it's joint responsibility, isn't it? And, you know, for example, 
Um, there was talk that Adrian Newey was um, so uh, demanding of Mercedes in terms of how low to to get the crankshaft that that introduced some technical dif difficulties which contributed towards the the engine problems. But you could say, you know, where, where's the blame there? Is it is it Mercedes for not being firmer, or is it Adrian for being unreasonable? You know, it, it's it's always a joint. It's always a joint thing. So I don't think you could say it. you could put this down solely to Mercedes, even though it was obviously the Mercedes engines that was blowing up. It wasn't the McLaren cars that were breaking down as, as such. It was the usually the engine. Well, I have to say, I think also Ron Dennis, in the same way that you mentioned there about Adrian, Ron Dennis was pushing so hard during that period of time from everybody, from us within the team. I can only imagine what he was put the pressure he was putting on Mercedes as well. And don't forget back then, when we look at uh, Formula One engines now, they just they last forever, don't they? They stay in there for races and races and races. Back then, it was a constant development race from the engine perspective. So we were pushing the thing to the limit. And pressure from Ron to Mercedes to do that, I'm sure, meant that they were really taking some risks in terms of materials and uh, some of the design. Uh, concepts that they were using in these things we had a new engine every five minutes so on one hand you can say yes of course we'd have loved that engine to be more reliable and, and bulletproof but on the other hand then pushing to that level for extra performance also brings with it a whole bunch of benefits and if they hadn't been doing that would we have been as dominant when we were uh, running reliable reliably too now not particularly unique for Suzuka, as we've all seen. Qualifying was wet and uh, windy and rain affected, and it got significantly wetter as the session went on. This was the final season of the somewhat short-lived one-shot qualifying, and the terrible conditions by the end left Alonso 16th and Raikkonen 17th, only ahead of cars that didn't set a time, which included the second McLaren of Juan Pablo Montoya. But that at least meant Raikkonen's grid penalty didn't have an impact, but a second Renault of Giancarlo Fisichella got his lap in just before the worst of the rain hit. So he was up in third behind a front row lockout for the Japanese manufacturers with Ralph Schumacher's Toyota on pole ahead of Jensen Button's Honda. Let's quickly talk about the one shot format here, as this was a rare example of it producing the sort of mixed up grids that were hoped for when it was first introduced in 2003. By this stage of 2005, there were rumours now that this would be replaced by some form of elimination style qualifying in 2006, which was, of course, what we got when the qualifying system we have today with Q1, Q2 and Q3 was first introduced. But Mark, looking specifically at one shot qualifying, what did you think of it? Were you a fan? A little bit conflicted. Um, it's not as meritorious as the system that we've got now. It is, is, you know, a lot of randomness in it, and it makes it very difficult to judge, you know, exactly who's done the best job or what what sort of job everyone's done because there's so many random variables. Um, but you know, it did give us Suzuka 2005, so you, you can't you can't say it was a bad thing. What about for the guys inside the team, Elvis? Did you like the one shot format? I mean, my. My guess from the outside is that I guess it wasn't as busy as the format that followed. Uh, it wasn't as busy, but it definitely felt like there was more pressure on that on that one lap, of course. And there were a number of occasions I remember where there'd been a problem in, in practice on Saturday morning, for example, where maybe another engine had blown up. And, uh, you know, we were up against the clock to get the car rebuilt and back together in time for that one lap. And in, a, in a, a more traditional qualifying format, you have a little bit of leeway about when you actually leave the garage sometimes. 
But on those days, you didn't. And I remember a number of occasions where we were literally dropping the car back on the floor with Kimmy in it, the engine fired up and almost like a pit stop from within the garage, it would screech out at the last second before the light went red at the end of the pit lane. So the pressure side of it, strangely, I quite liked that because it, it felt exciting from inside the garage. I think what Mark said there about the fact that you introduced a slightly random element from a team's perspective, that sometimes feels unfair because you can do everything right and conditions can change like it did on this particular day and you can end up down the back. But I think from a fan's perspective, maybe it added some element to it where we got, like you say, mixed up grids and, and some randomness often translates towards entertainment, doesn't it? Yeah, I was, I was a big fan of one-shot qualifying. It didn't always make for the best TV broadcast, perhaps, because it was very samey, but it was the, it's what happens on Sunday that really matters and I think it did mix things up. Now, pole position in Japan meant there was a lot of attention on Toyota. Its technical chief, Mike Gascoigne, didn't mince his words, saying, with so many of the quicker cars so far back, we have to look to capitalise and win the race. Ralph praised the team for bringing the B-Spec car to Japan and said Toyota had a good chance with so many other cars out of position, while team boss Sutomu Tomita said, it's a dream chance, but luck will be a big factor. We won't be thinking about winning until it happens. We need to be careful of Button. There's also Fissy Keller. And even though Raikkonen and Alonso are way back, it doesn't mean they won't make a charge. Mark, was there any feeling really that this was a genuine chance of a first win for Toyota? Or was Fissy Keller sitting there as the clear favourite, uh, third on the grid with all of the other quick cars at the back? Fissy was by far the favourite. I mean, the Toyota was not in the same class as the, the Renault or the McLaren. Um, but it was a quick-ish car, but not not a serious contender. And they opted to fuel it very light and go for a three-stop strategy when everybody else was doing a, a standard two-stop. Um, so it was a very aggressive strategy, and they you know, they, they looked into the pole position by getting the the best running slot. But um, they were they were ready to make aggressive use of it. But the no, he wasn't a favourite or, or anything like it. That was definitely fissy. He was the only properly quick car in, in the front half of the grid and so it really looked as though it would be a doddle for him and elvis what about in the mclaren garage was anyone talking about either car coming through to fight for the win or was it a case of damage limitation well first of all on the on the toyota thing i mean we had uh, i'm sure this is widely known but inside the garage of course we have software that was very quickly able to calculate the number of laps that a car had been fueled for at the end of qualifying. So we know what their relative pace is and we can figure that out. So I think everybody knew that the Toyota wasn't a real threat to anybody. But Fisichella being up there, of course, was, particularly given the situation in the Constructors' Championship. Both of our cars were way down the back and, all right, Alonso was with us, but one of their cars was right up near the front. So from our perspective, he was very much favourite for that race and, and all we could do was get as far forward as we can and see if we could collect some points. I definitely don't think that it was on anyone's radar on Saturday afternoon that we might eventually win this race. That was almost unthinkable at that stage. Now, one McLaren didn't make it very far at all, with Montoya ending up in the wall at the end of the opening lap when he felt the Sauber of Jacques Villeneuve ran him out of road after the final chicane. Montoya said, I was 100% beside him and he just pushed me and pushed me until I was in the grass. Villeneuve said he never saw Montoya because it's a right-handed corner so you don't look left. And even after seeing it on TV, he added he wasn't worried about getting a penalty for it. But the stewards saw it differently, giving, uh, saying Villeneuve forced Montoya off the track 
and giving him a 25-second penalty post-race that dropped him from 11th to 12th. So uh, a little bit irrelevant. Ron Dennis wasn't impressed, saying, I always struggle when people say I didn't see him. I think we all know what peripheral vision is, and I find it hard to believe that anyone can't see another racing car that is squarely alongside him. So, Mark, this was obviously a pretty meaningless penalty for Jacques, but did he have a point that he wouldn't be looking to his left coming back onto that start-finish straight, or was Montoya entitled to try the move that he did? I think Villeneuve would have been very aware that there would be a good chance that there's somebody there. Um, he and Kimi had their enthusiasm for each other very much under control. Um, they, they were always at each other. Um, Montoya. Montoya, sorry. And... Um, yeah, so he'd, Jacques had just been um, off at the chicane. He'd gone straight on at, at the chicane, um, defending from uh, Fernando, and so had come back on the track slow and on a compromised line, and Kimi was next on the scene. So it was obvious Jack was going to be, you know, um, potentially there's going to be cars around him looking to pass. So I, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say he wasn't looking to his left. Well, I'll believe him. Um. <laughs> uh, but that crash brought out the safety car for six laps, which incidentally Ralph Schumacher said cost him a podium finish as Toyota had gone with that light fuel load for qualifying and the start of the race. But Ralph didn't have the chance to pull away before his early stop. After the restart, Alonso cut the chicane, passing the red ball of Christian Clean. So he let him back through, then instantly repassed him down the start-finish straight. But he was still deemed to have gained an advantage from cutting the chicane and was ordered to let Clean back through again. Alonso did eventually complete a clean pass into Turn 1, but Flavio Briatore felt this moment cost Alonso the race as the time lost put him in traffic after his first stop, which allowed Raikkonen to jump him. Mark, you analysed these races in, in great detail, and you certainly did at the time. Was that how you read Alonso's race? Did this moment cost him the win? Yeah, probably. It cost him an eight, eight and a half seconds immediately in terms of how long he had to wait to allow Clean to catch back up and pass, and then the lap following Clean, and then the, the following lap getting past him. It cost him an immediate 8.8 .8 seconds. But without that 8.8 .8 seconds, he wouldn't have been jumped by Michael and Kimmy at the stops and so he, he would have been ahead um then because he, he did he did get he wasn't the head of that queue eventually um so yes in I would say they've got a very good um case to to say that uh you know, it may have lost him may have lost him the race but on the other hand would Alonso have put a committed pass on his teammate Fissy in the way that um Kimmy did so you know, it would have ended up a very different race, I think. Just as interesting. But what do you think, Elvis? Did Alonso do McLaren a favour here? Well, my heart bleeds for him, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, clearly it played a role in that. But, um, I mean, I was I was so focused on what we were doing that day and the emotion that went into that end result. And, in fact, all the way through that race, we were just progressing. I don't really think I had too much of an eye on what Alonso was doing. And... Of course, when you see a penalty come up for your main rival, although the championship in that sense was over at that point, there's a little bit of you that jumps for joy, even if you keep it inside you. In fact, I'm not even sure I did keep it inside of me that day. I may well have actually jumped for joy. Um, but uh, but yeah, he, he may well have a point, as Mark said, he's, he's analysed it and those numbers do tend to stack up. But 
look, Kimmy was on an absolute charge that day. And, and as a big part of me believes that I'm not sure that anybody could have got in Kimmy's way that day and not had to put up a really serious fight to keep him behind. We'll break off from the major players for a moment here, because shortly after all that was going on, uh, Takuma Sato and Yano Trulli collided at the chicane. And by collided, I mean Sato drove into Trulli at the chicane. <laughs> Trulli called the move obviously impossible. And he said Sato has been causing problems for a long time and the FIA has to take action to stop it. I have nothing against Takuma. He is a nice guy. But when he is in the car, he does not think. He never listens, so he will make the same mistakes again. When I saw him in the mirror, I knew I was doomed. Sato called it a racing incident, which I think is often the view of the guilty party in these situations. <laughs> While uh, Toyota boss Tomita called it reckless, saying to Reuters, I'm all in favour of aggressive driving, but Sato goes way beyond what is acceptable. The stewards seemed to agree and Sato was disqualified. Although again, much like the Villeneuve penalty, I'm not sure that meant much given he finished 13th. Mark, uh, Taku had also been off at the start, running wide at, at turn one. Do you think this, those few laps that he did or this whole race was just an example of him trying too hard on home soil? He's under massive pressure. You know, he'd been under pressure all year, um, trying to keep his drive. And then he's now in front of his home crowd um, and on the circuit owned by, his, by Honda, his employer. So, yeah, he was, I, I think, very disappointed at his level of performance and trying to put it right and just trying to snatch at opportunities as they came along. And it just it wasn't um, he wasn't in the right frame of mind to, to uh, fulfill his potential. Um, we, I think later on, it um, super Guri, he he blossomed into a great driver, fantastic driver, and of course he's had that fantastic success at Indy Sun. So he was a real late bloomer, but in that particular case and on that day, you know, he was he was wild and over the top. Now let's get on to one of the most famous moments from this race, and one that Mark mentioned briefly earlier, because Alonso and Raikkonen were nose to tail stuck behind the Ferrari of Michael Schumacher early in the race, but Alonso eventually found his way through with a daring pass on the outside of the famous 130R corner. So, Mark, you talked a little bit about the data from this pass earlier. How good was this move? And does the fact that 130R had been tamed a little bit a few years earlier take anything away from it? No, it doesn't. I mean, it was um, a stunning move. It was... it was a potentially fatal move if it went wrong. You know, if, if Michael had understeered a little bit and collected because Fernando's on the outside and interlocked wheels, you know, you can only imagine the sort of aircraft accident that would have unfolded. Uh, it took enormous balls and commitment to to do that, uh, to Michael of all people. Um, yeah, the, that year's Renault was a better car than the Ferrari. Um, the, the Ferrari was nobbled by its tyres, but even so, that that was an, one, of, one of the bravest and most committed moves I've ever seen. And an element of trust, of course, placed in, in Schumacher's hands. They were still pretty close at the point that Fernando decided he was going to make his way somewhere towards the apex. So brilliant driving. And I always think that great overtaking moves often require the driver being passed to show a little bit of respect as well. But Raikkonen didn't get past Schumacher prior to them both stopping at the same time on lap 26, which was four laps after Alonso had been in. But Alonso's time lost in traffic after his stop meant they still rejoined ahead of him with Schumacher still ahead of Raikkonen, thanks to taking on one second less of fuel in his stop. Raikkonen finally got past Schumacher on lap 30, although by this point he was now 17 seconds behind Fisichella, who was leading the race. 
So Elvis, there are 23 laps left at this stage. In the McLaren garage, was there any feel? Was there a feeling that all that time spent behind Schumacher had probably cost Kimi a shot at victory? Uh, yeah, I think so. Or definitely take it, made it a lot less easy. I, I actually think by that point, we were really genuinely starting to believe that he could catch Fizzy. Uh, whether we could get past him, of course, was another story altogether. But Kimi was in such a mood that day where he was on a mission to get past anyone in his way. And I honestly felt if we could get close enough and with a couple of laps still to do it, to have a go, he would have found a way past. So I, I honestly think that that's probably the moment where we started to feel like, do you know what? This might actually just happen. It was such an unlikely set of circumstances, but that was the moment where we thought, maybe, you know, maybe this is going to get interesting. Alonso passed Schumacher again three laps later, although in that time he'd lost six seconds to Raikkonen. Raikkonen had more traffic to deal with, though, as he quickly caught Button's Honda and Mark Webber's Williams that were running second and third. When they pitted, Kimi put on a stunning charge. At times at this point in the race, he was lapping more than two seconds quicker than anyone else. Fissy Keller had made his final pit stop by this stage, and by the time Raikkonen came in for his final stop, he did so with a 10.7 second advantage over the Renault and rejoined nine seconds down at the end of lap 45 of 53. A lap later, that gap was down to just 5.4 seconds. Then it became 4.3, 3.0, 1.8, and then 0.5 with three laps to go. Mark, what was Fissy Keller doing at this point? Pat Simmons claimed afterwards that Fissy had run out of tyres, but we also saw him defending into the final chicane when Raikkonen wasn't even trying to pass him. Did Fissy throw this one away? Yeah, he did. <clears throat> he was, it was the stint before that it was the penultimate stint where he just clearly hadn't understood how quick um, Kimi and also Alonso were coming through um, because he just wasn't lapping on the pace. He was just lapping as though he was in control of the race um, because he had a big gap back to second place and as though it hadn't actually been triggered. The fact that the the car behind, a long way behind, wasn't actually his threat. It was the the one behind that. Um, and by the time, yeah, by the time of the, the final stops and Kimi was now the car behind, um, it was more or less too late because Kimi was just, uh, you know, on a, on an absolute mission. And um, Fissy did actually switch on the pace at that point and it was was pretty quick in that last stint, just not quite as quick as Kimi. Um, but if he'd, if he'd driven that his penultimate stint as well as he drove the last stint, he would have been, I don't think Kimi would have been able to catch him. So yeah, the damage was done in the penultimate stint. And yeah, as you say, um, Fissy was defending the chicane before Kimi had actually arrived there, which would just slowed him even more. Yeah, Martin Brundle was particularly scathing of that on the, the commentary at the time, and we got lots of shots of the Renault pit wall and the anguish as uh, I think Alan Permain was trying to get Fissy to pick the pace up a bit sooner. Now, Elvis, we won't quite come to the final move just yet, but let's put ourselves in three laps to go. Kimmy's on Fissy Keller's tail now. Did by this point, did you think it was inevitable that he'd win, or was there that nagging feeling that in the days before DRS, Suzuka wasn't the easiest place to pass and he wasn't going to have many opportunities. Yeah, it was that one. Um, because, you know, yeah, getting behind is one thing, getting past is another. And 
I think particularly with three laps to go, okay, yeah, it's definitely a possibility. But as we get down to two laps to go and then one lap to go, you started to think, do you know what, that maybe this isn't going to be quite the fairy tale that it would have been. However, second place would have been incredible from starting where we were. That would have been great. But having got that close and with Kimmy on the the form that he was on that day and us, you know, that Mark just touched on that that final stint or the penultimate stint where Fizzy was perhaps not as quick as he, he should have been. I would counter that by saying Kimmy's penultimate stint was mind-blowingly fast. And those laps before his final pit stop really did bring him back into the picture. And then, of course, when he came out and he had, you know, he could see almost fizzy down the road, that was it. He had the bit between his teeth. So, you know, we were on such a, a great roll that getting to those last three laps, I think nobody really wanted to settle for second, although it would have been a great result. It would have been tinged with a bit of disappointment having come so close. Now, before we get to the conclusion of that battle at the front, we will pick up on Alonso's race. Button and Weber rejoined from their stop final stops ahead of him and Weber had jumped Button for what was now third place. Alonso made short work of Button but it took him until five laps to go to get Weber for third. The Williams didn't give Alonso much room on the pit straight and Alonso had a wheel on the grass after using a bit of the pit exit to make the pass. There's onboard footage of this in the 2005 F1 season review DVD and all I will say is uh, that's well worth a watch now, Mark, we've talked about the, the pass on Schumacher at 130R already, but I know you also have quite a lot of admiration for this move that Fernando pulled off as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the bits of telemetry Pat Simmons was showing me after the race. He actually, As he went to put a wheel on the grass and didn't, didn't lift, he actually got wheel spin and top gear on the grass. And <laughs> it still came through. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, those two, those when Weber and Alonso went wheel to wheel, it was always pretty phenomenal. You remember Arouge that year when they went through Arouge side by side? Yeah, two uh, two hard chargers who uh, who certainly don't don't back off. And so much for Fernando racing with no pressure and, and taking it a bit easy because he'd already won his championship. <laughs> but uh, let's get back to the battle for the lead. Raikkonen had a little look into turn one on the penultimate lap, and Fissy Keller covered it. But next time round at the chicane, Fissy Keller again drove way too defensively and compromised his exit onto the front straight. Raikkonen got another run then at the start of the final lap. Fissy Keller covered it again and Raikkonen swooped around the outside to grab the lead, giving us a brilliant finish to an incredible Grand Prix. Now, Elvis, I don't expect you to analyse this pass in any particular detail. We can do that with Mark <laughs> in a second. But what was it like inside the McLaren garage at that moment? Oh, it was amazing. You know, after the final pit stop in the race, you know, we know there's no more. The crash helmets, the pit stop crash helmets and balaclavas come off and you're sat there in those final moments, gripping the seat to the point where your knuckles are white. And they must have replayed this recently on F1 social channels because my Insta and Twitter just blew up with people sending me clips of this moment. And as part of the montage of, of footage, there's a, there's a clip of me leaping out of a chair celebrating at the time when Kimmy got past. And I can only describe it as, you know, the most pent up frustration up until that point where he came close, it didn't work. He came close, it didn't work. And then in that moment, I mean, all hell broke loose in our garage. There were just chairs being scattered everywhere. Everyone le leapt up and leapt around. And it was the most amazing feeling partly because of where we'd started the race and it was so unexpected. But also, like I touched on before, 
this idea that our little gang, our little crew around this car with Kimmy at the centre of that was such a great bunch of mates by this point. This is the end of a, end of a season almost. And to have that success that you knew the world was watching and yet could not believe what was happening. And, and, I, and we couldn't believe it either. But so, yeah, it was an amazing outpouring of emotion, of emotion in that moment. And um, like I said before, led on to one hell of a celebration. <laughs> <laughs> Even Ron Dennis said he was emotional after the race, calling it the best race of Kimmy's career. Raikkonen said, of course, it was a more difficult win than any of the others. And he said it was made even tougher by his seventh gear being a little short. So he kept hitting the rev limiter when trying to overtake people on the straights. He said that happened when he went to the outside of Fissy Keller. But in Kimmy's words, I kept it in as much as I could around the outside uh, of the first corner. So, Mark, looking at the pass itself, how good was this from Kimmy? And I guess we could say it was a fitting end to a brilliant drive. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, yeah, it was a classic committed around the outside pass, um, and he wasn't, you know, he, he was always going to do it. He was, you know, once once he put himself on that outside, um, he was always going to make the, make the pass. And you know, I, I don't think it would have mattered if um, Fissy had got out of the way or not. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was a magnificent performance. I, I do think probably it was Kimmy's best ever race and I think it was also Fernando's best ever race and I think that's what makes this race so special because you know you had two just absolutely unbelievable performances slightly different circumstances but um just around around a circuit like that you know one of the great greatest Grand Prix circuits of all um that it that should all come together um with those sort of performances I, I think is what for me that's the, that's the best Grand Prix I've ever seen um and you know I've, I've seen quite a few of them now it was definitely one of my favourites to be involved in. And you just said there, Glenn, about Ron sounding emotional. I mean, he cried. There are not many occasions in my McLaren career where I've seen Ron cry. And that was definitely one of them. Uh, he was emotional to the point where he couldn't get words out. And this is one of the most straight-talking, serious, controlled people that I've ever met. And yet he lost it at the end of that race. And that sort of summed up the mood of the team. We were all overcome by emotion. Now, this was a 2-3 for Renault, and with Montoya crashing out in the other McLaren, that meant Renault moved two points ahead in the Constructors' battle, but that seemed of little consolation to a team that had just lost the win on the final lap. And as Mark mentioned earlier, Pat Simmons wasn't particularly keen in uh, talking about it until Mark just wouldn't let him wriggle away. Now, Pat also expanded on his theory about Fissy Keller's tyres, saying Raikkonen and Alonso were able to save tyres while they were stuck in traffic, whereas Fissy had been pushing hard out front. Mark, do you think there was there some validity to that? I mean, from what you were saying earlier, it sounds like Fissy wasn't pushing hard enough. And surely when you're running in dirty air of the other cars, looking after your tyres is actually quite difficult. Yeah, I don't think... <clears throat> I think Pat was um, trying to soften the blow for Fissy. I don't really... Um... <clears throat> Looking at the circumstances of each each of their races, Fissies, Kimmies, and Alonso's, um, I, I, I don't think you can make a serious case that um, Fissy was at a disadvantage. Also, Kimmy didn't know how to save tyres. He only had two settings. It was on <laughs> or off. <laughs> <laughs> now, Flavio Briatore did say the defeat was painful, but he also said Raikkonen deserved it. And he said the race was good for Formula One, adding, we need every race like that. It was a good fight. I'm not saying we are happy, but we enjoyed it. 
So we'll finish on that point because this debate has been somewhat topical in the last year or so with the chat around reverse grids in F1, a move that's of course been rejected. Uh, this race wasn't a full-on reverse grid. You know, we had solid midfield cars at the front, a Renault on the second row, and the backmarker Minardi's were only 13th and 15th, so we can't call it fully reversed. But Mark, I'll come to you first on this. Was this race a good advert for jumbled grids in F1? I guess it was, but I would make a distinction between um, <clears throat> deliberately engineering a, a jumbled grid and um, the, the weather just randomly arriving and making the system that you've got produce a jumbled grid. One of them is artificial and the other one's not. And Elvis, you got to experience your car winning pretty much from the back of the grid and the jubilation that came with that. So would you be an advocate for top teams and drivers having to come through like that on a regular basis? Well, look, this all comes down to a much bigger question of what F1 wants to do, doesn't it? Because from a team's perspective, of course, you're going to feel like whatever you do on a Saturday, even if you, you're incentivized to go you know, all out on a Saturday and get points for qualifying or whatever, you're then going to feel like you're being unfairly penalised by being shoved to the back of the grid. But from a fan's perspective, yeah, of course, Suzuka 05 gives this idea that if there's an opportunity for fast guys at the back and they have to make their way through, that's great entertainment. The difference, as Mark said, if you're doing that every week, the teams will learn to game it and they will learn to prepare for that scenario. What was great about Suzuka 05 was that it was random, it was unexpected, and therefore we had to think you know, on the fly and deal with it. And deal with it, we did. And it came out really well. Yeah, we'll leave it there for Suzuka 05 then. And that's also the end of our regular episodes for Series 3. As I mentioned at the start, you'll have to wait an extra week or two for our final episodes when we'll be back taking your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. That means there's still time to submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. Thanks to everyone who has submitted a question uh, or a review already. And thanks today to the two Marks for their first-hand memories of being at Suzuka in 2005. Keep an eye on at We Are The Race and at Glen Freeman 39 for updates on when our short break will be over. In the meantime, make sure you check out Mark's new podcast, Pit Lane Life Lessons. And we'll see you again very soon when the power will be in your hands for the final two episodes of the series.